I remember the first time that I found myself in a small group Bible study. It was 1995. I was a freshman at Northwestern. I was a theater major and on the search for a spiritual connection. I had had some powerful moments of spiritual awakening that I couldn't dismiss. And that led me both to leave my home and family in Southern California, move to Chicago to go to school, and then to join this senior theater major and his friends in this basement of the arts dorm on campus as they gathered to pray, to talk about the Bible, and to sing love songs to Jesus. The content of the evening was super simple. It was genuine. It was honest and stunningly moving. I went skeptical, but curious. I left a weepy mess who had no idea what new dimension I had just stepped into. But I knew something was different, and whatever that was, I needed more of it in my life. This was my first taste of what I'd come to know as evangelicalism. A little more than a year later, in December of 1996, I found myself in Champaign-Urbana on Christmas break at an international missions conference put on by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, one of the most prominent and respected collegiate evangelical ministries in the world. I worshipped alongside 20,000 Christians of a variety of skin colors from a variety of churches in a variety of languages. I was moved by the testimonies of some of these Christians who had made huge sacrifices to share the good news of Jesus with the world. I was stirred and touched in deep ways by the worship. I saw a man miraculously healed before my own eyes. And when it came time to consider a response to what was happening, I felt this like sense of gravity and weight in the room holiness. I said yes to giving my life in a meaningful way in service of Jesus. And even though I had no idea what Jesus might ask of me, when I took communion that night, I felt this honor of being part of this global family of God. This too for me was evangelicalism. Less than five years later, in 2001, I found myself at another conference. Comparatively, this one was much smaller, but it was still a highly charged environment. My church at the time of about 800 people was celebrating its 25th anniversary. Alums from around the globe had returned to Evanston, Illinois for a family reunion of sorts. I was there with my new fiance, Jason. And our brand of church was from a particularly charismatic wing of evangelicalism, which meant there was like a lot of space made to listen to the Holy Spirit and believe that God was eager to speak to us. And so the last night of the conference, the leaders invited many of the alumni up to pray for like the next generation of future leaders. Okay, And so they called all of us like under 30 to come forward and receive prayer. And it was one of the highs of my life. I had been prayed for many times, but something about this particular experience was unique. I felt chills throughout my body, a powerful sense of God's closeness as these people prayed over me. And as I wept in the beauty of that moment, 
I felt like God spoke some of the clearest words that I've ever heard. Someday, you guys are going to start a church. Don't tell Jason. That's another story. <laughs> but that was the beginning of this journey that's brought me to where we are today. Conception happened that night. Pregnancy with a church baby <laughs> would eventually develop. Though for years, I didn't have any idea the role I was going to play in it. I thought Jason was supposed to be the pastor, which is why I wasn't supposed to tell him. At the time, I didn't have a model in my church framework that as a woman I could even be a senior pastor. Yet because of that moment, I'd eventually discern a call to ministry. I'd eventually say yes to it. I'd go to an evangelical seminary where I'd learn about a biblical ethic for women in leadership and racial justice and truths held in tension. And Jason and I would move our family from Chicago to Iowa City, from Iowa City to Berkeley, and I would dream and scheme and sacrifice, both of us would, for this dream to someday start this church. This, too, was evangelicalism. And then there was another fateful conference, about 12 years after that night of conception, in a season where I was now late in the stage of church plant pregnancy, ready to embark on this adventure of actually giving birth. I'd cleared all the hurdles. I'd passed all the evangelical tests. I was looking ahead with excitement and fear at the adventure to come, and then a problem arose. My movement of churches for the first time had taken a position on LGBTQ issues, a position I could not in good conscience agree with. You see, my evangelicalism had taught me to take the Bible very seriously and hold it in tension with the movement of the Spirit and the call of God to speak in the present day. My evangelicalism had taught me that God ever moves to those outside of God's family with a desire to bring them in. My evangelicalism taught me that sometimes healing isn't actually about individuals changing. It's about systems changing to see what God is doing. It's about God saying in our time, do not call unclean what I have made clean and being willing to trust God's spirit enough to step into those places of uncertainty. As one of the great leaders in my brand of evangelicalism said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And so when it came time to prepare to move to Berkeley and begin a faith community, my faith, formed in evangelicalism, compelled me to be honest. That the church I sincerely believed Jesus was calling me to start had to be fully inclusive of LGBTQ individuals, couples, families. And so there at that fateful conference in 2013, I found myself in another powerful spiritual moment. I was face to face with the person who held all the power to bless me to move forward with this group of churches that had been my family as long as I had been a Christian or to end that possibility. And as I sat down with him, I felt as if once again the Spirit of God was remarkably close. I felt like the Spirit brought me kind of like out of myself, 
I was watching this moment from the ceiling, like an out-of-body experience. I saw from above this man and I in our little chairs in this church lobby with God saying, Be aware, Leah, this is a significant moment. This is the moment you're being kicked out of this movement. He might not say the words, but that's what's happening. And it was. It was the moment I was told because I couldn't come to a theological agreement with church leadership about gay Christians, trans Christians, this was no longer my family. It was the moment I was told I had to decide, quote, if this was the hill I was willing to die on or not. And as I stood my ground and committed myself to what I could not deny Jesus had been calling me into for over a decade, it was the moment the bridges were burned and I could no longer go back. This, too, for me, was evangelicalism. We've been doing this teaching series for the last several weeks this summer called Smashing Idols. And in this series, we've been confronting the ways I believe we culturally create idols today. Rather than worshiping statues and carvings, we worship human constructs, ways of viewing the world, and we prioritize some of these over others. And when we do this, ultimately, we distort our view of the truth. We distort our view of one another, we distort our view of God, and that sadly becomes oppressive. And if this can be true of the idols we've been talking about, like androcentrism, right, the centering of maleness, like heteronormativity, if it can be true of whiteness, then it can also be true even of the frameworks through which we try to conduct our faith. So it can be true of evangelicalism. Here at Haven, we've been networked, sometimes formally, currently more informally, with some other churches who share similar history to our own origins. And in this group of communities of faith, we've talked about where we aspire to land, like in relation to other Jesus-centered communities. I have a graphic here. It's, it's not really beautiful on your sheet, but you can kind of, you can kind of read it. Um, and this comes to us from Phyllis Tickle. This is a graphic from her book, um, The Great Emergence. And basically we use it to say, we intend our connection to other faith communities to be ecumenical. Okay, to be ecumenical. We ideally see ourselves, Phyllis Tickle says there's basically of the Christian church kind of four quadrants that she identifies. The liturgicals, that's like Roman Catholic, maybe Episcopalian, Social justice Christians, that tends to be uh, a lot of mainline denominations as well as like uh, African-American churches. Um, conservatives, evangelicals, strong emphasis on the authority of the Bible. And then renewalist, another language for charismatic, very heavy on the Holy Spirit, Pentecostal, that kind of wing. Okay, these are kind of the four quadrants she identifies. And we ideally as Haven want to be this this thing in the middle, ideally, right? It's like kind of circling the center, drawing on the best of all of that, but not living kind of exclusively down in one corner or the other, right? 
So that's kind of our goal, how we relate to these other, to the greater church, is to kind of be somewhere in the middle, trying to draw on the best of it. But we have to acknowledge our own background and that that influences us. Okay? So while it's true that we might aspire to circle the medal, we can't help our DNA. And as of now, I would say where most of us are coming from has been a primarily charismatic evangelical background, somewhere in the bottom half of, the, of that graphic. Right? Most of my background and the background of other churches I'm currently connected to has kind of emerged primarily from the bottom half of the quadrant. Now, I started with my stories of my faith history because I want you to know that this isn't abstract for me. Okay? I don't approach this topic gleefully, eager to like skew some silly group and their backward ideas. This is emotional for me. It's personal. To consider the impact, both positive and negative, of evangelicalism is to consider, in a sense, my own spiritual family of origin. I owe my faith to the gifts I've received from the evangelical church. I've experienced moments of glory I don't know that I would have experienced otherwise. I'm living the faith that was formed in me in those settings, and I have given my life to it in a real way. But my heart has also been broken by the evangelical church. In that unique way that your heart can only truly be broken by those you've known as family, as kin, as your closest relations. I know this isn't all of our stories. It might not be your story. But it is true for a number of us here today, right? And for those of us for whom it's not, even if you're new to ch church or your faith background isn't evangelical, I would say that maybe your involvement here at Haven in any way makes it relevant because this isn't only my story. I think it is part of Haven's story in a sense. And so all of us are in some way a part of it, right? So to wrestle with the idols of our faith frameworks, to consider the idol of evangelicalism, I would say, is to wrestle with a family story. I think that's the first thing to fill in. To wrestle with the idols of our faith frameworks is to wrestle with a family story. And family stories are messy, right? It is hard to look at the parts of our family histories that are toxic. It's hard to hold those intention with the things we should celebrate and uphold. There is beauty and there is ugliness, but we need to be able to see it all to understand ourselves in the story. A central question we'll be wrestling with, as many people are, I think, not just in this room, is what happens when we find ourselves at odds with the folks we've known as family? How do we follow Jesus in that place? Well, in case you didn't know, Jesus also seemed to have a fairly complicated relationship with his family. We see it from early on, so we're going to take a look at that because I think it might be helpful. Let's remember the first story of Jesus' life that comes beyond infancy is Luke 2, where we're told the story about Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, right? journeying to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals, and rather than pilgrimaging back at the end with his parents, young Jesus stays at the temple for a while. 
And his family starts caravanning without him. And then a day or two out of town, they finally go looking amongst the tents, right? It's like you can imagine Mary and Joseph, they just think he's there with some friends. But they start asking around, and Jacob doesn't know where he is, and David doesn't know where he is, and Ishmael, none of them know where he is, right? He's not in anyone else's tent. And then they have this little bit of panic. Like, oh, crap, I guess we have to go back to Jerusalem, And then they find him there in the temple, learning Torah, asking questions of the rabbis. It says this in Luke 2.48, When his parents saw him, they were astounded. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I have to say, I do have some sympathy for Mary in this moment as a parent of of a guy this age. (laughs) Elliot's like, on a uh, across-the-country trip right now, my 13-year-old, and, and he did not text me that he was getting on the next plane when he changed planes on his own yesterday, and I was slightly freaking for a while. So I get it. I may have called Southwest to tell <laughs> see if they would tell me if he was on the plane, and turns out they would not. But he's okay. <laughs> so I get it. But... Here's Jesus' response. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. It's like Luke is giving us this hint of what's to come. This story comes right after the nativity accounts, right? So we see Jesus' parents like super grateful for all these miracles around his birth. But by the time he's 12 it's clear that that they didn't really get what all of it, like the angels and the prophecies and the shepherds, all of that must really mean. They don't really get him. They did not understand what he was saying to them. And as an adult, once he begins his ministry, we get a sense that things get harder from there. Mark highlights the tension Jesus had with his family from the beginning, particularly starkly. So let's look at Mark 3, starting with verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who? are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. 
All right, so here's the context for this passage. Jesus has recently, just recently started ministry, and it's like taking off now. Okay, he's healing people. He's preaching. People care about what he has to say. Folks are regularly starting to follow him. In fact, as Mark tells the story, this account comes right after Jesus has appointed 12 main followers, right, to do life with him, to be his ambassadors. He's calling people to live intimately into mission with him. And then this happens. So here we see these two groups really troubled by what's happening with Jesus. One, if we've studied the Gospels at all, are the folks we'd expect, right? The teachers of the law, the Jewish religious leaders. They're the classic adversaries to Jesus, the religious elites. But the other group is a bit more surprising, right? His family. The picture we get isn't that mom and the sibs are just like coming to have a nice little chat and make sure like Jesus gets a snack and a nap, right? It is more intense than that. Mark tells us they are coming to take charge of him, saying he is out of his mind. This isn't the only place we see that for Jesus, family life is getting complicated. And in John 2, We see Jesus getting a little bit ticked with his mom because she's asking him to turn water into wine at a wedding. In John 7, we're told that his brothers don't believe in him. I got to think, you know, we don't think a lot about what it would have been like to, like, grow up with Jesus in the house. Maybe be building a carpentry business with him. You are working with him, your older brother Jesus, the other brothers. And then all of a sudden, one day, he starts shirking his responsibilities not building the tables with you that he's supposed to be building, and now he's going around preaching and baptizing people. Like, maybe you could get why they might feel a little put off, right? Whatever the case, we get the sense that Jesus' family, similarly to the teachers of the law, clearly misunderstand him. Mark puts these stories together, not because they actually happened at the same time, but we see it seems to be an editorial choice he's making because for him, they are connected. One informs the other. Why might that be? Both of these groups of people are making false accusations against Jesus. They're both misinterpreting him. The family thinks he's mentally unwell and can't be trusted with himself. The Jewish leaders think he's possessed, that he's in league with evil, the evil personified by Beelzebub or Satan the language for the enemy of God. And while these religious leaders cannot deny Jesus' power, they can question the source of it, say it comes from evil instead of good. And Jesus' parable points out how illogical this is, right? How can Satan drive out Satan? You're seeing powerful things happening. You are seeing positive activity. And yet you are calling it the activity of evil. This is a big deal. Not only are you just incorrect, you are grievously missing it. You are calling the activity of God evil. That's like cosmically offensive, Jesus says. Mark is saying Jesus calls it the eternal sin. I don't think this is about just like being scary and spiteful. Ha ha, we got you. You committed the eternal sin. It's over. That is not the spirit of Jesus. No, I think what Jesus is saying is, oh, shoot, if you can't trust the activity of God, if you can't see the fruit 
of God's good work. If you are too blinded by your own frames and lenses to see God at work if you're in your midst, if you're too invested in your idols, whether they're the idols of your religious practices or the idols of your family roles, that you have to interpret things that don't fit the mold, not as astounding miracles, but as signs of the devil, oh, you are colossally missing out. You miss seeing and experiencing the power of the Spirit at work in front of you, and that is tragic. Where do you go from there? In Mark's story, Jesus goes from that point to these people who also seem to be missing what Jesus is doing. The mother and the siblings, they do not see the activity of God in their midst. They are missing it. They may be well-meaning, but their investment in pulling Jesus away from what he's doing makes clear they're not able to partner with the activity of God playing out in front of them. And that causes separation. So Jesus doesn't go with his family. Now, a lot of commentary writers try to play this down, that he doesn't go. But you can't get around it. He is dissing them. It is a diss, okay? His family has traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum to rescue Jesus from himself, and he's not going to let himself be rescued. No, I am not mentally unwell. Just like I am not in league with the devil, I have the work of the Spirit to do here. And my people, my kinsmen, my family right now are the people who hear that call, who sense that Spirit, who are committed to that work with me. And so I love you. I'm grateful for you. I will always care about you. On the day I'm hanging on the cross, Mom, don't worry. I'm going to reach out to my buddy John here, make sure he takes care of you. Brother James, I know you're going to come around one day. You're going to play an important role in this whole deal. But for now, no, I can't go with you. Because like I told you, when I was 12, I got to be in my father's house. Amen? So in recent years, I've been doing some research into the history of evangelicalism, the parts I didn't learn in seminary. Truthfully, more and more articles have popped up in my Facebook feed in the last couple of years exploring this history because on November 8th, 2016, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump to be president of the United States. Evangelicals, the Christians who are supposed to care about the Bible, who are supposed to care about pursuing lives of holiness, the Christians who are supposed to care about the poor, welcoming the stranger, actually living your faith, these Christians voted overwhelmingly for a man who seems to be biblically illiterate, has a history of oppressing the vulnerable, calls immigrants rapists and murderers, has had many affairs, brags about grabbing women by the pussy, and two years in, after Charlottesville, after kids locked in cages, after the Mueller report, <laughs> while some overall who have voted for him have expressed having second thoughts, his support amongst white evangelicals is still nearly unwavering. So how is this the guy? 
for evangelicals. Early in my experience in college as an evangelical, I was exposed to, I think, a fairly attractive brand of evangelicalism. I was introduced to an evangelicalism that was smart, thoughtful, concerned with justice for the vulnerable, could demonstrate that concern with its history. Evangelicalism was basically defined to me, and I'm going to put these up because a lot of, there's a lot of questions around who, how do we exactly define this group, but most kind of scholars of religion will say that they share these kind of four distinctive parts of how they express their Christian faith, okay? Evangelicalism was basically defined as a broad swath of Christians, folks from many brands of churches that shared these four core things, taking seriously the idea of conversion, making some sort of active choice to follow Jesus, They believed seriously that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of Scripture, and thus had some special authority to speak into the lives of Christians in a unique way. They believed that the cross had a unique power through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring salvation, to connect people with God, essentially. And they believed that our faith should compel us to activity in the world, to some sort of activism partnering with God in what God was up to, sharing the good news of Jesus with those who hadn't experienced it from themselves. That's basically what I understood it meant to be an evangelical. And while it's true that evangelicals may in some way share these core understandings of Christian faith, it's also true that evangelicalism is still a human culture and a system. And human systems can sometimes get in the way of us actually living our ideals, right? Human systems have a hard time flexing to nuance, adapting to change. Human systems have a hard time defining what the ideals actually mean and how we're intended to apply them. And in the process, human systems often concentrate power and serve some while oppressing others. So there have been 19th and 20th century Christians that today's evangelicals would see as historical parents that found their Christian faith compelling them to advocacy for the vulnerable, compelling them to serving the needs of the poor, to advocating for women to have the right to vote, to making biblical arguments for the abolition of slavery. That is part of our heritage. But there's also been Christians who also should count as our forefathers and mothers, who used Christian faith as a way to pacify their black slaves, to teach them that they needed to learn to submit to their earthly masters, and in this would be their salvation. While there may be some versions of evangelicalism that see themselves as open-minded and intellectually curious, it's also true that in the early 20th century, in the face of growing acceptance culturally for the scientific theories of evolution, including in some brands of the Christian church, it was conservative Christians who hearted themselves against these intellectually challenging beliefs, giving rise to a brand of militantly passionate Christian faith called fundamentalism, as they insisted that true Christians would read the Bible as literal and historical, and so evolution could thus not be true. After World War II, 
as the brand of fundamentalism began to fall out of favor, perhaps because its militancy, militancy drew parallels to what we had just confronted in Germany, conservative Christians sought to soften the image. What we know of as contemporary evangelicalism was born. Many scholars of religion today note that the success of the brand change from fundamentalism to evangelicalism gave rise to this understanding I had sincerely held of what it meant to be an evangelical, what I shared with you. But these scholars will also note how little in the core structure of the system actually changed. Follow me? While evangelicalism hoped, I think they may have sincerely hoped to have a bigger tent than fundamentalism. At its core, it has always been an androcentric, heteronormative, white supremacist culture of Christian faith. And any challenge to these has generally caused great tension within the system. So when Dr. King led his march on Selma, Alabama, white evangelicals were primarily disapproving. Yes, there were some white Christians who marched with Dr. King, but most of them were not conservative Christians. They were not evangelicals. They were Catholics and Lutherans and Unitarians, the people on the top half of that quadrant. They were not evangelical. Frank Gaberlein was an outlier. He was an associate editor for the young premier publication in the evangelical world, Christianity Today. And he went from New York to Selma to cover what was happening. And he was so inspired that he wired his boss and told him they need to let evangelicals know that they must join the march that day. But Gabaline's stories never saw the light of day because the primary founders and funders of Christianity today were staunch segregationists. That's in our history too. Many of us are aware today of the unholy alliance that the white evangelical church has seemed to hold with the Republican Party since the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, thanks primarily to the rise of the religious right, the moral majority, but are we aware of the origins of that religious and political organizing effort? The way most in the religious right tell the story, conservative Christians started organizing politically in the 1970s as a response to a decision by the Supreme Court legalizing abortion, right? Roe versus Wade. But as Randall Balmer, a Dartmouth religion professor, has written and lectured on extensively, that is a myth. It's demonstrably false. The impetus for the rise of the contemporary religious right was never abortion. It was segregation. Abortion was the smokescreen. Check this out. When Roe versus Wade was first passed, W.A. Criswall, the Southern Baptist Convention's president at the time, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century, he was pleased with the outcome. Read this quote. I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. This is the president of the Southern Baptists when Roe v. Wade was passed. They approved that abortion was legal. 
What couldn't be allowed was what was happening in another wing of the federal government, the IRS. Beginning in the early 70s, the Internal Revenue Service had begun using its tax exemption policies to try to motivate institutions that were resisting desegregation to comply. They did this by denying tax-exempt status to any institutions that refused to admit people of color after Brown versus Board of Education. Years later, places are still not desegregated. And so the primary institutions in question of this strategy were evangelical universities. Bob Jones University, we have a picture, was one of the institutions that came under fire from the IRS. They believed that racial segregation was mandated by the Bible. And anger at the government outreach ma made many white supremacist, white supremacist Christians see in this move, they saw it as this government over overreach, which was the actual impetus for the organizing that happened in the late 1970s. These forces would organize to help white evangelicals unseat one of their own, a Sunday school teaching proud to be an evangelical Democrat named Jimmy Carter. And yet, these evangelicals organized against him to replace him with a relatively biblically illiterate Hollywood playboy named Ronald Reagan. And abortion was chosen amongst a number of ideas thrown out in a strategic conference phone call between religious and political leaders as the issue to publicly galvanize evangelicals around. Because in a post-civil rights era, it couldn't be race. You couldn't say that out loud. Feminism, gay rights, down the line, those would become other popular targets. But the animus that organized the political wing of white conservative Christianity was always about race. So when scholars like Randall Balmer saw how 2016 was playing out, with more and more white evangelicals choosing Donald Trump over those who seemed to be genuinely Bible-believing Christians, they weren't surprised. Balmer wrote an article in the Washington Post in April of 2016 as he's sweeping the primaries. You can remember how stunned everyone was that that was happening. But Balmer said Trump's success with evangelical voters isn't surprising. It was inevitable. Some of you already know the origin, sto origin story of this particular teaching series, but some of you don't. It was two summers ago, we had a prayer group led by my friend Ginny, hosted by Jason and I, and we were praying into this vision for Haven that I had recently kind of been laying out earlier that spring. The vision that we kind of show in this um, Venn diagram we've created believing that God has called us to be a community holding three things in tension, being safe, being diverse, being Jesus-centered. And so we were praying into that over the summer and asking God to speak about practically how we might move into living out that vision. And part of the vision for this prayer group was to listen and to believe that God might give us pictures, words, direction that we could then try to follow in living it out. 
And so we were, we got lots of amazing pictures and words that summer that were encouraging. And then the last night happened. We came to the last time of our listening prayer. And as we prayed, I got what felt like the heaviest of pictures. In this picture, I had something like a vase in my hand. And I was throwing it to the ground. And I was watching it shatter. And as I did that, I felt like I heard these words, Leah, it's time to shatter the idol of evangelicalism. I got to admit, that felt pretty harsh, pretty heavy. I mean, I had long since stopped seeing myself as like fitting in the evangelical mold. I understood that that faithful conference in 2013 was essentially my ejection, not just from this particular church movement, but from the movement of evangelicalism. I understood that. And while rejection, of course, hurt tremendously, I have found something on the other side. I have found this beautiful, stunning community. After death, I have experienced resurrection, and it has transformed my faith. So I've been okay saying I've emerged from that corner of the church. I'm trying to live in this ecumenical way, circling the center. While I might not call myself an evangelical, I wouldn't have pointed to evangelicalism and called it an idol. That felt too intense. But when I nervously spoke this into the room, all of us who were gathered there just felt the weight of it. And we all acknowledged that it felt true. That this was an idol Jesus was inviting us to shatter, not for anyone else necessarily, but for our own capacity to live into Haven's vision. You see, what I hadn't acknowledged until that word was the ways that my forming in the evangelical world and the ways that Haven's origins in that world had shaped me and us and the formation of what we are doing. While I may have said theologically, I'm not sure I can call myself an evangelical anymore, all the ways I thought through this project, how it should be formed, what it should include, how we could evaluate its success or failure, All of that came to us from an evangelical social system. The very project of, quote, planting a church, that is largely an evangelical project. And until we acknowledge that and think critically about how that has shaped us, we might find ourselves captive to our faith family of origin in ways that that aren't helpful in living out our mission or our identity because we're captive to an idol. When Jesus' family and his religious leaders came to confront him, they both questioned his authority, they questioned his motivation, they questioned the activity of God in their midst, attributing to the work of mental illness or evil. This too, I believe, is the misguided sin that too many evangelicals, as well as potentially other church traditions, have fallen into. The blindness of our narrow views of the Bible and the need to justify the upholding of our cultures and systems have caused us to use our theology, not to always seek and support the unfolding work of God in our midst, but to restrain it, to redirect it, to shut it down, 
to attribute the work of God that we don't yet have a framework for, for some version of cultural craziness or liberal politics or evil, which, let's face it, for many evangelicals are all the same thing. So the majority of evangelicals aren't comfortable with women in positions of power. Okay, we have to acknowledge that. So they celebrate theologically their difference from men and say the Bible says women are created to help and men to lead. And the majority of evangelicals aren't comfortable with folks outside the binaries of sex and gender and sexuality. So they appoint to some obscure verses in Leviticus and call gay people abominations. Amen. And mentally ill. Yes. Thank you. Right? The majority of evangelicals are uncomfortable considering issues of systemic injustice. Right? So we need to, they say we need to focus on our individual lives, our personal sins, stay out of politics. But staying out of politics for them still certainly means voting Republican and suppressing or ostracizing Christian evangelical voices who use their evangelical convictions and theology to argue against torture by the government or for protection of the environment or inclusion of the queer and trans community in the church or racial justice, true racial justice that repents of the sins of racism that have been embedded in our institutions, including our Christian institutions, and have brought harm to people of color in the name of Jesus. Amen? The truth is that the vast majority of evangelicals are white. 76% today of evangelicals are white. And these white Christians may be getting somewhat comfortable with people of color in their churches, but usually not in their pulpits. People of color can come if they want to worship like we worship. They can come if they ascribe to what we ascribe to, they say. They can come, but they cannot change what we are. They can assimilate to white church because that's what evangelicals do. Yet the idol of evangelicalism cannot acknowledge its androcentrism. It cannot acknowledge its heteronormativity. It cannot acknowledge its whiteness. It must try to shut the activity of God down instead. But God is not confined by any human system, including evangelicalism. Amen? God is not confined by evangelicalism. God, the Spirit, is bigger than any vessel. She does not live in any human system or structure. Amen. The activity of God to transform the world with love and freedom cannot be controlled. When you try to shut it down by crucifying it on a hill, it will rise again. Amen. That is the resurrection project our God is up to. In this picture I had of smashing the idol of evangelicalism, it was clear this was not an empty vessel. There was beauty inside. It was like a perfume released when that thing broke open. There was genuine spiritual power, real, authentic connection with God, worship that brought change in the world. All of these 
We're alive in that vase that broke. There is so much good in the world that has been delivered to humanity through the gift of the evangelical church. I affirm that. I affirm that. Just as there is so much good that has come through the other segments of the church as well, and we long for all of these. And this is the good stuff we're trying to embody and live into at Haven. But in order for this to be released, to live in power, for it to live into its unique manifestation here in this cultural moment in Berkeley with Haven celebrating women and queer folk and people of color, it's the evangelical container that needs to be broken. Because the container isn't the good stuff, right? It's just a holder for it. So we can love our family. We can pray for our family. We can cry out for God to redeem our family. And we also recognize that when our family cannot see God at work in our midst, at times, like Jesus, we must say, no, I will not be shut down by you. I will not go with you. I will not come under your control for this Friends, this is my family, right? These folks, you folks who are participating in the activity of God in the world that I believe God is speaking to all of us. These are the brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers I have to live this mission out with. Needless to say, we'll have our own blind spots. We'll have our own places where we are tempted to be more invested in our understanding or vision than our view of God, we must continually be looking for the Spirit to reveal the logs in our own eyes, the idols forming in our own midst. We are not immune. But our hope is trusting that this is the work the Spirit is always doing. This is the work the Spirit is committed to for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's the work the Spirit has done since a group of recently liberated Hebrew slaves burned their earrings and made a cow, our hope for our communities, as well as the global church, is that we worship a God who wants to free us from idolatry so we can see the beauty of God more fully. We worship a God who's committed to bringing us into greater awareness of who this God is, and that as we journey together, we as Haven will continue to invite this God to reveal God's full self to us, whatever that means. Amen.